0: Friends, would you uh, open up to Hosea chapter 4, Hosea. So we have wrapped up um, our series in the Psalms. The the last series was the Psalms, tough questions that were found in it. And in that section, uh, we we addressed many of the Psalms that were um, found because the people of Israel were going into captivity in Babylon. And so it was kind of a difficult section dealing with tough questions. Where are you, Lord? How much longer? How do we sing these songs when we are in captivity dealing with injustice? And this morning we are going to be kind of continuing on in that theme in looking at the book of Hosea. Now, in our American culture, a scandal is often uh, identified with a suffix, those of you who are remember your English, with the word gate. Water gate, right? And in Watergate, it all started, if those of you who love that kind of political intrigue, it started with the crimes that were connected with break-ins and the cover-up during the wit- witch administration. Nixon, good job, good, good. So this is not only your uh, biblical sermon, this is also going to be your, your history. Uh, Watergate uh, became much more than uh, a name of five buildings in the foggy bottom area of Washington, D.C. The name has been associated with scandal for the last 40 years. Scandals are absolutely everywhere. You, you even look in our our political system with stuff that is going on today. When scandals happen, they are highly public. And there are usually lessons that kind of outline the the controversy. For instance, who knew what? And what did they really know? Do you you feel that even today? Who knows what? And what do they really know? In the texts, in the emails, in the phone calls, or You might feel in the scandals that the cover-up, it might even be worse than the crime itself. Or you you might even think about, man, that these scandals are shocking. What is up with these people? Why would they do that? They're, They're telling, these scandals are telling, and that is why we are studying the book of Hosea. We're going to be starting a, kind of a seven-week series on this minor prophet, Hosea. Why is it called a minor prophet? Because generally they're, they're smaller books. Uh, but in this book of Hosea, it is a, if this story were to hit the news and the tabloid media, media today, it would be called Gomergate. Gomergate. The book of Hosea is a prophetic message from God to the people of Israel through a scandalous story of a man who marries a woman who is ultimately uber unfaithful to him. And actually that's pretty whitewashed. That's a whitewashed telling of it. It's it's an enacted, it's a real life story, a prophecy that God, where God communicates and illustrates his relationship to the people of Israel based on the way Hosea loves his wife who ultimately goes wayward and she herself becomes a prostitute. It's a glorious and an absolutely gritty book. Hosea highlights the scandalous nature of God's grace and His relentless love. So why are we studying this book about a nation during the 8th century B.C.? Let me give you a couple reasons. One, Hosea helps us remember the beauty of God's grace by actually feeling the scandal of it. This book is filled with both prose and story, and its aim is to speak to your mind and to your heart about the beauty and the scandal of God's grace. Secondly, Homer addresses the painful problem with spiritual adultery, an issue that did not end after the prophets went off the scene. In other words, spiritual adultery is happening here, today. So it's, it wasn't just an 8th century before Christ problem, it is a Spiritual adultery is a problem that we deal with and will continue to deal with in 2019 and in 2020. And until the day Jesus comes back, we are going to be dealing with this issue. And so this is an issue that we need to carefully consider and we also need to feel deeply about. There are, there are similarities to Israel's cultural and our culture That we need to really wrestle with. And lastly, another reason that we need to be looking at this 8th century B.C. prophecy. Hosea foreshadows the gospel. We can read it through the lens of the new covenant and renew our love for the the work of God's scandalous grace in our lives. So, I hope that this book will make you stop and say, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. And then also, wow. Make you be kind of shocked. And say, well, no more. And then make you go, wow. That is absolutely beautiful. My prayer is for you to see the seriousness of scandal, uh, uh, of your sinfulness, or as I said last week, the, the sinfulness of your sin. I hope you are able to see the actual sinfulness of your sin, but I hope that you will also see the greatness of God's love and grace for you. So God chose to deliver this message to a wayward people through a real life, real life, this is not just a metaphor, but a real life illustration of a husband's love for a wayward woman. And this enacted metaphor delivers a powerful message. It, it invites us, it actually invites you to feel what God feels when there's spiritual adultery. This book invites you and me into the drama and to see this more than just a Gomer gate. It is my scandal. It is Lisa's scandal. It is Drew's scandal. It is Liren's scandal. It is Paul's scandal. This is our scandal. So my friends, we are going to read chapter 1. And my encouragement is, as I have divided this series up over uh, more than, less than the number of chapters... I'm going to encourage you to read ahead. Read some of this stuff before we show up to worship. Don't just wait. Read it ahead of time. But this morning, would you stand for the reading of Hosea chapter 1? Hear God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam and the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to, through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of, nobody wants to say it, do they, whoredom. And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So, when he, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Debalam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu and for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here, here is, there's a theme for of every person has, Hosea provides a theme for every person who, um, who has experienced God's mercy. This, this book provides kind of a template for anybody who has experienced God's love, His mercy, His grace. And here it is. God gives grace to wayward people because He's God. God gives grace to wayward people. Why? Because He's God. So let me kind of unpack three sections here. First, wayward people, and then who are under judgment, and how they find grace. And as we do this, let's be sure to keep putting ourselves, this is not just We're kind of at a 10,000-foot view, kind of watching the story of Hosea and Gomer work out. No, let's find ourselves inserting ourselves actually into this story. So resist the tendency to read this from a distance. Enter yourself into this story of scandalous grace. First of all, wayward people. The book of Hosea was written to warn and to win back people who were wandering from their relationship with God. It's a a warning shot. But it's not just a warning shot. It's it's also a a wooing back, a call back. Verse 1 helps us to understand the setting in which this book was written and the situations that it was addressing as it related to the people of God. First it starts off, The word of the Lord came to Hosea. It indicates that what follows is actually a message from God himself to his people. That God delivers this message through a book. God is speaking as we open up this word. As I said, let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is not just a formality we do for God is speaking as scripture is being read. And he is doing that still today. The prophet's name is Hosea. We know very little about this man beyond this book. But interestingly, his name means help or helper, which comes from the word salvation. Joshua's name also shares... uh, pieces with this name Hosea as well as Jesus so we also learn that his ministry took place during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Eh Ahaz and Hezekiah in Judah and also during the time of Jeroboam in Israel so this set the book of uh, Hosea was written during the 8th century B.C. prior to the birth of Christ right and the two king, the nation of Israel had been divided two year, two hundred years prior, into two different kingdoms: Israel up in the north, and Judah in the south. So that's why you have the list of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. The listing of the kings show us what is the environment of, that was taking place. And if you want to read the backstory, I sent it in a text to to. Well, oh, probably almost everybody. There is a backstory in Second Kings fifteen through twenty and Second Chronicles twenty six through thirty two. Judah was far more spiritually faithful. They were following more closely after the Lord. Three of the four kings listed in verse one are regarded as faithful and righteous kings, except the one exception. Did you pick up who it was? Probably not. His name is Ahaz. Ahaz was not. But Israel, sometimes called Ephraim in in Hosea, kind of write that in your notes, Ephraim is kind of a reference to Israel, was in trouble. He was in trouble. They were in trouble. Jeroboam is listed as the king of Israel, and he reigned for 41 years. This guy was evil, evil, to the core, but he was successful. It's amazing what success can do to a people, how they can ignore evil as long as they are rewarded with success. He extended the reach of the kingdom. He fortified the the capital city of Samaria, and he built a very prosperous economy. But the nation was filled with injustice, spiritual hypocrisy, and idolatry. The 30 years that followed Jeroboam's death were times of political turmoil and assassination. There were six kings in 30 years. And to the east was this rising power of Assyria. And this would have been during the time in which Jonah went to Nineveh, calling that city to repentance. And eventually, Assyria invaded the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And Israel itself was taken into exile exile, and the land was resettled with people who were eventually the Samaritans. And Hosea's ministry takes place in the years preceding the Assyrian invasion. And his primary message was to call the people back from the brink of spiritual apostasy before they fall under God's judgment. And this book is a collection of messages to a wayward Israel, mostly in poetic form. If you're looking for an outline, I, I can give you... Three sections. The first section is chapters 1, 2, and 3, and that is a story of Hosea's life. And then you get uh, the second section, chapters 4 through 11, and this is found to be Hosea's first warning. And then 12 to the end is Hosea's second warning. So back to chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 introduce this enacted real-life prophecy of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful woman named Gomer if you are going to have children do not name them Gomer not the name rather than simply declaring a message what did God do because he has done that in other in other uh, books of prophecy where he just declares to the people instead what does god do here god uses the real life illustration of a prophet with a real live woman named gomer and that was god's platform for his message in doing so What does it do? It personalizes and it elevates the power of the message. One commentator commentator said this, Hosea turned his life into a sanctuary where God's holy love was to be known. His life became a place where God's holy love was known. Now, it doesn't seem that Hosea was uh, commanded to marry a woman who was immediately unfaithful. God instructed Hosea, go marry this woman, Gomer, and take her to be your wife. But rather, this marriage moves from covenant fidelity and faithfulness and love towards unfaithfulness. And then it gets worse, because the text is really clear. Hosea's wife falls into the worst kind of unfaithfulness. She fell into or walked into prostitution. And the picture is meant to make you wince. It it should make you feel uncomfortable, even in in the first three verses. For how many times did I say, whoredom? And every one of you kind of goes, he said it again in front of the kids. He said it, whoredom. And as we're going to see next week, Hosea is not only forced to deal with the unfaithfulness of his wife, but in order to bring her back to him, he has to buy her back in a transaction. Let that sink in. He had to buy back his original wife. And Hosea is going to take this wife of whoredom but he was also going to have children with this woman. So while he's trying to bring her back home, there are children who are being born, children who need a mother. So think of what that unfaithfulness did in their home. Think of the questions that the kids have in their home. Think of the looks of the neighbors. Think of the pain, the sorrow, and the outrage that is going on. Why would a married woman with children becomes so wayward what is she after what does she want what what can she do with all of that and these are questions that undergird that are underneath Hosea's life and these are the questions that are meant to be asked and there is a reason why this is happening God chose this metaphor for a purpose verse two makes it unmistakably clear For the land commits whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And this is a helpful record of what is going on in Israel at the time of 2 Kings. I I, I want to encourage you, read 2 Kings 17 and read the list of what is all going on. But I'll just quickly highlight. The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. So first it starts off secretly. I can hide this. Then they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and Asherim. And so these are two pillars and altars to other gods. So it started off as a secret and then it built into we're going to start building pillars and altars to these other gods. And then God warned them by the prophets, but they did not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been stubborn who did not believe in the Lord. They despised. They ultimately started despising God's statutes, his covenant that he made with their fathers and all the warnings. So their heart was starting to get harder and harder and harder. And do you remember what I said in the beginning? The king was extremely evil, but what was happening in the country? success they were experiencing success and this is how wayward they were listen to this it got to the point where they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the lord provoking him to anger this is how wayward they were taking their own children and burning them on the altars of foreign gods. But while all this is factually true, Hosea helps us to really understand it, even appreciate it at a much deeper and more intimate level. God could have used any metaphor, any illustration, to make his point clear. He could have just used plain old words and just said, hey, turn back to me. Come on back. This is wrong. This is bad. But he chose a wayward wife because... I think he knows that we will get it a lot better by using a real life illustration. It, it's as if God is saying here, Do you feel this? Do you feel the pain of adultery? The waywardness of Gomer and the faithfulness of God is designed to make for us to make a connection between how god's people often treat god himself how we treat god like a really good piece of music or art this book is designed is not designed to just merely move you through move through your eyes and move through your ears like a really good piece of music or art, it is aiming for your heart. It's aiming for your heart. A good piece of music is not just what you hear. It moves your affections. And God wants us to have some idea of what he feels. So somewhere in your mind you need to kind of mark down this for three reasons we need to ask god to help us to actually feel our way through this text i'm not asking you to disengage your mind but i want you to actually feel your way through this text rather than just reading it and studying it because that that can be a problem that we have in our circles we just study and we know the facts but we also need to feel our way through it We should also feel, as we read through this, how outrageous. We should really feel how outrageous and sinfulness our sin is before a holy God. And we should feel our hearts swell with gratitude towards Christ. Why? Because He was the one that bought us back. With his own blood. So that's, that's who those wayward people are. But we also, the second observation that we're going to notice, the second one is that they were under looming judgment. God, God is giving wayward people is, is really the, the reality of the judgment that we and they have to face. Their waywardness is a real problem. But moving outside of God's favor should be absolutely terrifying and frightening. To make this point very poignant, you see in verses 4 through 8, a record record, records God's instructions to Hosea about the names of his children. Not only is Gomer just a terrible name, but the names that follow Speak about how painful this really is. These names are designed to elicit a reaction, to make us feel. I I heard as I read it, his name uh, is her name is No Mercy or Not My People. I heard somebody over here go, oh. Good. That's the way you should react: is no mercy, not my people. It should elicit some kind of reaction. In verse 4, we find the first name of a son, and his name is Jezreel. And you might need to think of this name as if uh, I would name my child Benedict Arnold, or Nixon, or Vegas. The name carries a lot of baggage, Jezreel was a well-known place for battle and bloodshed. Maybe Armageddon would be a good name to get the same kind of feel. But the point makes, uh, this verse makes the point very clear, saying, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. I will break their bow or I will break their trust in the valley of Jezreel. In other words, the clock is ticking. It's coming to an end judgment isn't far off. Armageddon is coming to an e- coming very soon. So God it's a, it's a warning with the name of Jezreel. Hey, my judgment is coming. And I want you to know, name your first kid that. And then shortly after that, in verse 6, we find that G- Gomer conceives again and bears a daughter. Can you imagine You have a beautiful daughter, and God instructs you to name that daughter what? No mercy. No mercy. Some commentators suggest that the lack of reference to Hosea may mean that this is a child born in prostitution. We don't know for sure, but what is promising uh, here is frightening. I will no more have mercy on the house of, of Israel to forgive them at all. I will have no mercy. And Judah is still favored by God. And it seems that God is attempting to almost provoke Israel towards some kind of, je- uh, some kind of um, jealousy here. But take note of the second half of verse 7 because, because it, becomes, it will become the theme here that god saves his people by his own power he saves them by himself not by what we are prone to trust in the people of israel were prone to trust in the bow they were tr- prone to trust in the sword in the in war in horses and horsemen man if we could have military strength i will trust in that and part of the problem with people the people of israel is worship and they were trusting in the gifts rather than the giver of gifts and this is not a a problem that was retired in the days of hosea do you remember romans chapter one therefore god gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to her impurity to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about god for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. So verse 8 is also equally devastating. we got Jezreel, and we've got ourselves, no mercy, and she has another child in prostitution, And this child, this boy, his name is not my people. God makes a stunning statement. You are not my people and I am not your God. That hurts. Or at least it should hurt. We should feel the pain in that moment. My people was a a chosen term of endearment. And if you look in in the book of Exodus, at least 17 times, that is how God referred to his people. They are my people. My people. So this is marking the severing and the breaking of God's relationship with his people. God is separating himself from his people because of their sin. The covenant made at Sinai has been broken. The people like Gomer, have played the harlot. And God says, I'm done. It's over. Now this is, would not only be expected, it's fully justified, right? In one of the commentaries I was reading, uh, Westerman said this, God's judgment needs a reason. God's judgment needs a reason. His compassion does not. And that's good news. So here we got this. God is saying, listen, uh, judgment should come. The covenant was broken. And God should be done with this relationship. And if the story ended there, it, it would not be unfair or unholy because God has every reason to be just and to bring down judgment. He has every reason, even for us and our sin, to bring down judgment on our sin, on our slothfulness, on our inward hate- hatred towards Him or towards one another. God has every right. If, is this how you see God and His holiness? I fear that some of us see God through such grace Filled eyes that sometimes we fail to see the reality of our sin. Let me say that again. Sometimes some of us see God through such grace-filled eyes that sometimes we fail to realize the weight of our own sin. Who would blame a man for walking away from this marriage? In fact, more than likely, the elders of our church would say, you have every right, every biblical right, because adultery is breaking the covenant. No one would blame a man or a woman for walking away from marriage a marriage to a prostitute after two illegitimate children and years of unfaithfulness. But I'm glad the story doesn't end here. But make no mistake of it. God is not obligated to redeem Israel. God is not obligated to save anyone. Our sin, my sin, your sin, Gomer's sin... Our sin deserves eternal punishment. It's not only a miracle that God saves us. It's a miracle that he saves anyone. It's a surprise. Wayward people under judgment find grace. Why? Because he is God. So that leads to the third third thing here. This chapter. Chapter is a summary of what we find in the book of Hosea, but in the gospel as well. Grace. It it all begins with the word. I love it in verse 10. It is circled and it is highlighted. That first word in the English translation translation in verse 10 is yet. Yet. What a word. Despite all that we have done, despite all that they have done, despite all the shame and all the pain of being rejected, despite the undeserving nature of God's love and God's compassion, yet, yet he still chooses to go after them. For friends, you should be breaking out into applause and saying amen, hallelujah, because this is the good news of the gospel. Yet, while I was yet a sinner, what happened? Christ died for me. While I was a covenant-breaking, fist-raising, rebellious, God-hating sinner, Christ died for me. Notice what God says next. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Where's that coming from? Come on, uh, audience participation. Where's that coming from? Abraham's promise. The Abrahamic covenant. For many of you, that promise should sound really familiar. It's, it's, The covenant where God walks through the sacrifice with Abraham and signifies that he is going to be the one keeping the covenant. He knows full well that we will be covenant breakers. But God says, I will walk through and I will keep the covenant. In other words, God's faithfulness to his people does not ultimately depend on them. Thank God. If his faithfulness depended on me, I'd be screwed, and so would you. Their only hope, their only hope is in God's faithfulness. Wayward people are only brought back, are only brought back because of God's faithfulness, not their own faithfulness. Salvation comes from God, and it is by God. Additionally, there is a great and paradoxical kind of transformation that takes place here. In the very place where it is said that you are not my people, they will be called what? Children of the living God. The place of judgment now becomes the place of restoration. My friends, I hope that you have some kind of gospel filter going on right now when I say that the the place of judgment becomes the place of transformation. Where else have we seen the place of judgment become the place of transformation? In the cross. Praise be to God, right? On the very hill where Jesus was punished, that is the very place where we have been set free. Here's how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's how John saw in Revelation chapter 5. And between the, the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the Lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that's not that's not all. Hosea envisions a day when the kingdom would be would be un- unified in a new messianic age under one leader. And that leader, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. The people of Israel, my friends, may have been rebellious. But God will one day rescue them. They may may be exiled, but God will bring them back. They may be deceived, but one day God is going to open the eyes of their hearts so they may See him. The people of Israel may have bad and wicked hearts, but one day God will change that. And do you know the amazing thing about this story? The scandal of God's grace is most evident at the cross. The sinless Son of God, the sinless Son of God, died for rebels like you and me. The obedient King of Israel the faithful husband was executed for wayward people like us. The omnipotent Savior was crucified for the crimes of wayward people. And my friends, the beauty of the Gospel is that Jesus did that for you. He is Hosea. You. Me. I. Am Gomer. No matter how. Far. You run. No matter how far you ran. In your life before Christ. What did he do? He ran after you. This is almost better than the. The parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, the son went off to the far off land. And where did the father stay? In his home. In this story, which is not really a parable, it's a real story, what did Hosea have to do? He had to chase after and go after And my friends, that is what God does for us. No matter what you've done, He will chase you down and He is going to pay for your debt. No matter where your wayward son or wayward daughter or your wayward friend, your wayward dad, your wayward mom is, no matter where they are, Jesus can buy them back. God gives grace to wayward people because of who he is. His mission, my friends, his mission through Christ is a story, a reality of God's relentless love and scandalous grace for people like you and me. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, my friends, I want you to remember the scandalous nature of His grace. The relentless love of our Savior towards people like you and me. That He was, in the place of condemnation, placed there on His own free will so that we might be free. So when we come to this meal, we eat and we drink, knowing and believing and feeling and experiencing the truth of the Gospel and His Spirit. When we eat and we drink by faith, we'll strengthen our hearts, firm up our resolve to love Him even more, And to love one another more because we all know we are in the same boat together. And we are all experiencing the beauty of the gospel together. Let's pray.